Welcome to Christian Fellowship Ministries. We are glad you joined us. This sermon series challenges us to check ourselves from the inside out. You know, on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And when he asked me if I would um, cover the pulpit for today while he's traveling, uh, he kind of gave me a, a, a warning. He said, uh, the, the, the good thing is that it's only two verses. The, the bad thing is that it's really hard. So uh, I opened up to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be covering verses 31 and 32. And it says this. This is Jesus talking. He said, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Wow. That's what I get to preach on this morning. (laughs) Those two verses, that's it. Right? Well, this is, first thing that I thought of when I read this verse is, I guess I won't be opening with a joke. It's a tough, it's a tough topic, right? Um, It's not so much tough because of the text, although the text is actually a lot more complex than it appears on, on the surface when you look at it. The reason it's tough is because I know that many of you have experienced the pain of divorce. I know that that this really, you know, gets to the heart for a lot of you because you've gone through it. And if the statistics hold true, then that means probably about 50% of the people in this room, 50% of the people that you work with, 50% of the people that you run into on the street have gone through this. But churches, quite honestly, don't like to talk about this topic because it's an uncomfortable topic. But if 50% of us have gone through it, I think it's a pretty important topic for us to talk about. And Jesus talked about it. He talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount in verses 31 and 32. And if Jesus talked about it, it must have had some value. There must have been a reason for it, right? If he put it in the Bible, there must be a reason for it. Divorce is painful, right? Divorce is painful before it happens, when the home is filled with conflict. It's painful when you're going through it, when the two parties separate themselves and take their sides and hire attorneys and fight over who did what and who gets what. It's painful for the kids who are standing there watching it happening and quite often somehow feel like there's some blame that goes on them, right? And it's painful when it's all said and done, and you're sitting there alone, and you're looking back, and you're filled with regret, you're filled with sadness, it's painful all the way around. It's painful for your friends to watch you going through it because they love you. But we often get married when we're young, right? When we're in love, and we have this notion of love that oh, you know, my, my heart is beating, right? And, oh, I'm in love. I just can't wait to see that, that person again. Um, my, my eyelids are flittering, and I just can't wait to call that person again. I just can't wait to, to text 
that person a little secret little message, oh, I love you. And you know, it's all warm fuzzies, right, at the beginning. But is that love or is that infatuation? When we're in that stage of a relationship, we're not looking at the bigger picture. We know that we, what we, we love what we feel right now, right? We're not looking at things like, what does the other person think about faith? What does the other person believe uh, about finances or about, you know, what are their beliefs on how to raise children? We're not thinking about, can I really be okay with their bad habits? Can I be okay with their hobbies and how much time they spend on their hobbies that they're not going to be spending with me? We don't, we don't think about those things. And then we tend to get married while we're still in that infatuation stage. And then seven years later, we come to what's called the seven-year itch. You know, you've all probably heard that term. And the seven-year itch is basically when you get to a point and you feel like this isn't what you've bargained for. I've put up with this guy or this girl for seven years, and this isn't what I thought I was getting into. You conclude that, um, you know, this, this person just has way too many issues, way too many problems than what I'm willing to deal with or what I can deal with. But the truth of the matter is that the seven-year itch really isn't about the other person, is it? It's, it's about you because you made a commitment to that other person, right? You made a commitment for life, and that seven-year itch is you saying, I don't want to abide by my promises anymore. I don't want to abide by my commitments anymore. So to many of us, this may sound like you know, a, a familiar thing because many of us have gone through it. But the truth of the matter is that even if we didn't make those specific mistakes, we've all made mistakes in our lives. We all have things that we regret in our lives. And we're all subject to failure, and we're all at the mercy of a gracious God, right? So I'm not going to spend this sermon beating everybody up for the mistakes that they've made. I've made plenty of mistakes myself. That's not where I'm going to be going with this. In fact, my hope is that by the time we get through this sermon, even though it's about divorce, which is kind of a depressing topic, by the time we get through it, my hope uh, is that you're going to walk away not down in the dumps, but actually encouraged uh, and excited. Quite honestly, I was. I, I was when I first started working on this sermon, I'm thinking, man, how am I going to get through this without depressing people? But as I worked on it more and more, I actually became excited about delivering this message today. Now, I was blessed to be raised in a two-parent home. It wasn't a perfect home, right? There was a lot of fighting and a lot of arguing that was going on, as you have in, in most households, right? And I grew up in this church. I grew up in a church where I was taught about the love of God. I was taught how to worship. I went to youth group in this church when I was a teenager, and it was really kind of beat into our heads over and over again, not to be unequally yoked, that you should date Christians if you're a Christian, right? And so I, I was blessed to have that upbringing and that stable foundation to begin with. And my marriage has been blessed, I believe, as a result of that. Tammy and I are going to be celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary in, in three weeks. 
And I'm so blessed, Tim. I'm so blessed. But many of you didn't have that foundation, right? Many of you grew up in, in broken homes. Many of you never went to church. Many of you never went to youth group. Many of you never even heard the term being unequally yoked. And so you started off at, at, a, at a disadvantage right off the bat. But like I said, in preparing for this sermon, I learned some things that I actually didn't know a month ago before I started working on this. And as a result of, of what I learned, the sermon is going to take a different direction than I think you're expecting it to take. So let's begin with Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at verse 31 and 32 again. It was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, how are you going to become excited about a passage like that, right? Well, Jesus starts out by saying, it was said. In other words, you've been told. So it's important to understand what was said and who was saying it. Well, Jesus is talking here about the scribes and the Pharisees. And on some of the previous sermons, Pastor Lucas was also getting into what the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were saying and how Jesus was confronting them. And this is another example of that. Jesus says, here's what they say, but here's what I say. The scribes and the Pharisees have been telling you that if you want to divorce your wife, you write her a certificate of divorce. That's it. It's paperwork, right? But I say that if you divorce your wife for any reason other than sexual immorality, you cause her to commit adultery. And if you marry a divorced woman, you commit adultery. So were the scribes and the Pharisees technically correct in what they were saying? Was it in fact okay according to the law of Moses to divorce a wife for any reason as long as you filled out the proper paperwork? Now remember, these guys, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the experts in the law. Their whole life was about the law. They studied the law they literally had to have the law memorized. Every pen stroke of the law had to be memorized. If you walked up to one of these scribes or Pharisees and you said, quick, Deuteronomy 2.1, boom, they knew it. They had to. That was what their whole life was about. So were they wrong in what they were telling the people? So let's take a look at the same passage of scripture that they were looking at, right? You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but it's Deuteronomy 24, starting at verse 1. It says this. This is uh, the law that God passed down to Moses. And it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her, 
and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. So here God is basically saying that if a a man divorces his wife, she goes and gets remarried, he can never marry her again. She's off limits because she has gone and married another man. She's been with another man, so she is defiled. The first husband can never take her back. Even if that second husband dies or if that second husband divorces her, the first husband cannot take her back. Okay? Now, there are a few things that we need to understand from a cultural aspect. First of all, only men could issue a certificate of divorce back then. Now, that seems kind of silly from our perspective, right? It seems kind of sexist, doesn't it? That only a man could issue a certificate of divorce. The wife had no legal right to divorce her husband. But actually, we're going to find out in a few moments that there was actually a much deeper spiritual reason for this. And hopefully in a few minutes, this is actually going to make sense of why that was the case. But that was the cultural situation. Only a man could issue a divorce. All right. Second thing is that the purpose of the certificate of divorce was to declare the freedom of the woman from her her marital obligation to the man who was divorcing her. It was a statement that the woman was set free from that covenant and that she wouldn't be accused of having forsaken her home or leaving her husband, okay? It was also evidence for the second husband who wanted to marry her. It was evidence for him that he had the legal right to marry her because she was free. The third thing is that whenever we read about divorce in the Bible, it is always assumed that the woman is going to get remarried. That is always an assumption. Whenever you read about divorce in the Bible, it's always assumed that the, that the woman is going to get remarried because back then it was kind of a socioeconomic necessity. It's not like today when women go to college alongside men, they pursue careers alongside men, and women are fully capable of, of, of supporting themselves. But that was not the case in this cultural context. The, the woman really depended on her husband for support. And so the woman, it was always assumed that the woman was going to remarry. So when Jesus says in Matthew five thirty one that it was said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's saying, look, you've all been taught that divorce is legal. You men have been taught that as long as you fill out the paperwork, everything's fine. No harm, no foul, right? She's free now. She's not obligated. She can marry someone else. She can be supported by someone else. No problem, right? But then Jesus says in verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, the the thing that, that initially struck me about this passage 
is that Jesus isn't saying that it's okay to divorce your spouse on the grounds of sexual immorality, although that's how many people interpret this passage. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that if you divorce a woman for any reason other than sexual immorality, you are causing her to commit adultery. Okay, so here, what Jesus is saying is there, there are two scenarios, okay? Scenario one is what if the wife does commit adultery, right? Then the husband divorces the wife. So in scenario one, there's obviously adultery in that situation because the wife committed adultery. Scenario two, which is what Jesus is talking about here, he's saying, okay, if the wife doesn't commit adultery... But if you marry her, or, or if you divorce her for any reason other than adultery, you, by divorcing her, are causing her to commit adultery because she's going to get remarried and she's going to be with another man. So either way, Jesus is saying that no matter whether there is adultery in the relationship to begin with, or if you divorce her and adultery comes as a result of it, either way, divorce ends in adultery. That's what Jesus is saying here. So the distinction isn't in whether or not adultery was committed. The distinction that Jesus is making is who caused the adultery. Jesus basically says that the scribes and the Pharisees are missing the point. They had watered down God's standard for marriage. They diluted God's standard. So Jesus clarifies it and points out the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees were wrong and that they were sinning by diluting God's standard. Okay, so Jesus singles out adultery. Why only adultery? Aren't there so many other valid reasons? I mean, we can think of a lot of reasons that are valid for divorce, right? Maybe, maybe you're in an abusive situation. Maybe your husband has a gambling problem and has gambled away all of your life savings and now you're in debt. But Jesus only focuses on adultery. Now, there's an extremely important reason for this, and, and it's important that you understand this because it gets to the heart of why God invented marriage in the first place. And I'll give you a little hint. It's not about us. Okay, so keep your finger in the book of Matthew, but let's go to the beginning of the Bible to Genesis. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18. This is what it says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come upon the man and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones 
and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife that they shall become one flesh. Okay, so what we see here in Genesis chapter 2 is God creating marriage, right? God creates Eve from Adam's rib. So right off the bat, they are permanently and physically linked to each other. They're tied together. Once that bond was made, once God took Adam's rib and made Eve out of Adam's rib, there was nothing that they could do to break that bond. They were permanently and physically tied together, right? Even if Adam were to go and find some divorce attorney and try to find another wife, it doesn't matter because they are permanently and physically linked together. Then Moses, who wrote this, goes on to say in verse 24 that a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. In other words, there's a shift that happens here. The, the husband is no longer under the jurisdiction of his parents, right? But he becomes one with his wife, right? He holds fast to his wife, and they become one flesh. So there's a permanence there. There's a permanence that can't be broken even when we get a divorce because we've become one flesh. And this is why Jesus says that every marriage that ends in divorce, adultery is always involved because you are permanently linked to your first spouse. Okay, now let's go back to Matthew, but this time, instead of Matthew chapter 5, let's go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Starting at verse 1, this is Jesus talking. He says, Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Okay, so the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they ask him this question. Now, they, they weren't asking the question because they wanted to know the answer. They're asking him the question because there's a large crowd there. They wanted to frame Jesus. They wanted to catch him and show to the crowd that he was a fraud. So they try to trap him with this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So Jesus answers in verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What Therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus basically responds by insulting the Pharisees, okay? He quotes this passage that we just read in Genesis, and he says, Have you not read 
Of course they've read it. That's all they do. That's their life. They've memorized it. And Jesus is insulting them by saying, don't you know what Genesis chapter 2 says? God made marriage permanent, period, end of story. That's what Jesus' response is. So they respond then in verse 7 and say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Hmm? They think they've got him trapped now. Hmm? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So the Pharisees, they think they've got Jesus cornered, right? But Jesus clarifies what Moses said. He says, Moses allowed divorce because of our hardness of heart. That's why God allowed it. But then he restates what he said in the main text in in Matthew chapter 5, that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So God considers marriage permanent, period. You find no place in scripture where God says that it's okay to divorce. You only find places in scripture where it talks about how to deal with divorce once you're there. Okay, so now we've established the guide rules, but we really haven't asked why. Why was it that only men could file for divorce? Why was the permanence of marriage so important to God? Why does God hate divorce? Well, this is where it gets interesting, and I want you to pay very close attention to this because everything hinges on this next point. To find the answer, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. Please turn there because this is important and I want you to follow along. In your pew Bibles, it's page 978. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 22. Says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then Paul says this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, I don't know about you, but I've read this passage a million times, right? In fact, it was read at our wedding. It's, it's read at a lot of weddings. And always, 
there's something about this passage that makes me cringe. You know, when, when you look at the, at the part where it says, uh, wives, submit to your husbands, there's just something about that that just doesn't sound right. You know, it sounds kind of sexist, kind of, I, I don't know, overbearing, right? But the reason we cringe when we hear this passage is because we're seeing what's on the surface and then we ignore everything that's following it. We see those words and we're so focused on those words that we don't see what's following it. We don't see what's undergirding this statement. What's really happening here is that God is saying that marriage isn't about us. Marriage is a symbol of our relationship with Christ, where Christ is the groom and we, the church, are the bride. Paul says in verse 22 that in the same way that a husband and wife become one flesh, right, permanently bound together, in the same way Christ is the body, We are, the bri- we are the bride of Christ, right? And we are his body. So there is a physical link there. We are his body. There's a physical permanent link between Christ and the church. So God invented that permanent physical link between husband and wife to illustrate that. To illustrate that permanent physical link between Christ and the church. Paul says in verse 28 that husbands should love their wives just as they love their own bodies. Why? Because they are their own bodies. They're one flesh. And they aren't going to neglect their own bodies, so they shouldn't neglect their wives, but they should nourish and cherish their wives just like Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. Then Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage isn't about us. Marriage is a visible definition of the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, Scripture gives us an interesting illustration of this uh, in the Old Testament book of Hosea. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. It's hard enough to find. You know, we we hardly ever go there. But Hosea, uh, in chapter 1, starting at verse 2, it says this. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So God tells the prophet Hosea to go out and marry a woman who is a prostitute. Why? To show the people of Israel that they are prostituting themselves, right? God is saying, I am the husband, and my people Israel, you are the wife. You are going out and prostituting yourselves by worshiping other gods. You're not following me. You're following false gods. So, Hosea, I want you to go, and I want you to give them a visual picture of this. I want you to go out, and I want you to marry a prostitute so that the people of Israel can see that this is exactly what they're doing. 
In chapter 2, it talks about how Gomer was a prostitute for hire and how she pursued other men for money. Then in verse 6, it says this, and this is Hosea talking. He says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil and who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. Okay, so in a nutshell, what this says is Hosea is saying, I'm not going to let her go without a fight. I understand that she's cheating on me. I understand that she's pushing me aside. But I'm going to pursue her and I'm going to get her back. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to make it as difficult as possible for her to ply her trade. I'm going to put thorns in her past. I'm going to put obstacles in her way so that she fails. And then when she fails and she's out of customers and she's out of money, then she's going to see how good she had it with me and she's going to come back to me. Right? This is what Hosea is saying. This is all symbolism. God intended this to be a parallel to God's relationship with Israel. God's saying... I am going to pursue Israel even though they're running away from me. Even though they're pursuing false gods, I am going to pursue Israel. Then in the third chapter of Hosea, it says this. It says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a letek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So now in chapter 3, it's as Hosea predicted. Gomer's out of money. She's out of customers. And here she's literally standing on the auction block ready to be sold as a slave because of her sins, because of her adulteries. And God tells Hosea to go and love his wife who has broken his heart over and over and over again. Why? Because God wants to illustrate that he loves Israel who has turned their back on him and followed other gods over and over and over again. And after everything that's happened, listen to this, Hosea pays to get her back. He pays money to buy her back. What did Hosea do? He redeemed her. Does that ring a bell? Christ 
the bridegroom, paid the price for our sins, and redeemed us. No matter how far we run away from God, he will never stop pursuing us. That's what the word tells us. He will never stop loving us. His mercies are new every morning. Do you see now how marriage isn't about us? Marriage was not designed for what we're going to get out of it. That's the problem with the seven-year itch, right? Marriage was never designed for what we're going to get. Marriage was designed to show us a divine relationship using a human illustration. That's why God invented marriage. So what kind of love does Christ have for the church? Is it that eyelid flittering, heart pounding, you know, pulse racing, I can't wait to text you kind of love? Or does God have a deeper love for us, one that is committed to us? Does God have a, a deeper love for us where he's going to pursue us even though we keep pushing him away, even though we keep running in the other direction? Marriage isn't a guarantee of happiness. It's not a guarantee of pizzazz or fulfillment. It's not a guarantee of anything. Marriage is a promise between two consenting adults that they are going to love each other enough to stick with each other until they die, even when that infatuation stage wears off. I remember many years ago we had a, a missionary couple come and visit the church, and they were a married couple. And I remember the, the, the man came up and he said, when, when we got married, I made two promises to my wife. The first promise was, I will always love you. The second promise was, we will always be poor. <laughs> we have to be okay with that. We need to be okay with the fact that our marriages absolutely will not always be filled with happiness. We have to be okay with the fact that our marriages absolutely will not always be filled with pizzazz, right? We have to enter into marriage okay with the fact that that infatuation stage is going to come to an end. We have to be okay with the fact that when it does come to an end, marriage becomes hard work. And it requires patience. And it requires effort. And we have to understand that before we jump in, because once we jump in, it's permanent. And it's permanent because of Christ's relationship with us is permanent. And marriage is a symbol of that permanence. Christ is always patient with his bride. He's always committed to his bride. We have to be okay with the fact that our spouse is going to fail us. And, we ha and they have to be okay with the fact that we're going to fail them, right? And when, not if, but when that pizzazz isn't around and, and you don't feel like you're being fulfilled, we don't, start go, we don't go and start blaming our spouse. Because Christ will never issue a certificate of divorce to his bride. Because if he did, remember what Christ said? If he were to issue a certificate of divorce, 
he would be causing us to commit adultery. If he divorced us, his church, he would be forcing us to go and find other gods. And that would be adultery that he would be causing. He's never going to do that. And remember what I said before that, that in the Bible times, only the husband could write a certificate of divorce? Now think about this. If Christ is the groom and the church is the bride, this tells us that Christ is the only one who has the right to issue a certificate of divorce, right? Jesus has the right, the legal right, to issue a certificate of divorce to us because he's the bridegroom. But he never will. The Bible says, it shows us in Hosea, that he's going to keep pursuing us, keep pursuing us until we come back. He will never issue a certificate of divorce. But just like Gomer didn't have the legal right to issue a certificate of divorce to Hosea, the, 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 the church does not have the right to issue a certificate of divorce to Christ because he's holy, right? We're the ones who failed. He, he isn't the one who's, who's failed. So when we see this, what appears to be this sexist passage, there's a deeper meaning behind it. This is an illustration of God's relationship with us. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Human happiness ultimately comes from a right relationship with God, not from a right relationship with people, even if those people are our spouse, right? And if our relationship with God is right, then our relationship, our human relationships, are going to follow. And if our relationship with God is not right, then our relationships with people are going to follow. But when you are right with God, when you are right with God, that's where the beauty comes in. That's where the beauty comes in in the marital relationships and in your other human relationships. It all points back to him. It all points back to Christ. It's all about him, even marriage. And I truly believe that if we can view our marriage from a different perspective, if we can turn it inside out, like this, like this sermon series uh, is the, that's the theme for it, if we can look at it inside out and realize that marriage is not about us, that it's ultimately a visual picture of Christ's relationship with us, then we can perhaps begin to find joy and satisfaction in our marriages and in our human relationships. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we thank you that even though we do fail, even though we get divorces, even though we fail in so many ways beyond divorces, Lord, we fail you every day over and over again. Sometimes we get more excited about buying a new TV than we get about worshiping you. Lord, this is all idolatry. This is all adultery. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for those times when we don't seek after you the way that we should, when we seek after those, those false gods. Lord, we ask you to forgive our past sins, and we are thankful for the mercy that you give us 
every day. We thank you for the grace that you bestow upon us every day. And Lord, as we leave the church today and as we go back into our daily lives and go back into our marital relationships or even as we go into dating relationships that may one day lead into a marital relationship, Lord, we pray that through all of this, we would keep in the back of our minds that, that this relationship, this human relationship, is a visual picture of your relationship with us. That we might have more respect for those relationships, that we might be more honoring to the people that surround us, that we might be more loving to the people that surround us. And Lord, I ask that you would keep this in our minds and in our hearts, and Lord, I just ask for your blessing upon everybody in this room today. In your holy name we pray, amen. Now please stand. This has been a presentation of Christian Fellowship Church.